Chapter 27 of The Pirate's Own Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Christ. The Pirate's Own Book by Charles Elms. Chapter 27 The Algerine Pirates. Containing accounts of the cruelties and atrocities of the Barbary Corsairs with narratives of the expeditions sent against them and the final capture of Algiers by the French in 1830. That former den of pirates, the city of Algiers, is situated on the shores of a pretty deep bay, by which the northern coast of Africa is here indented, and may be said to form an irregular triangular figure, the base line of which abuts on the sea, while the apex is formed by the Casaba, or citadel, which answered the double purpose of a fort to defend and all the city, and a palace for the habitation of the day and his court. The hill on which the city is built slopes rather rapidly upwards, so that every house is visible from the sea, in consequence of which it was always sure to suffer severely from a bombardment. The top of the hill has an elevation of nearly five hundred feet, and exactly at this point is built the citadel, the whole town lying between it and the sea. The houses of Algiers have no roofs, but are all terminated by terraces, which are constantly whitewashed, and as the exterior walls, the fort, the batteries, and the walls are similarly beautified, the whole city from a distance looks not unlike a vast chalk quarry opened on the side of a hill the fortifications towards the sea are of amassing strength and with the additions made since lord exmouth's attack may be considered as almost impregnable they occupy the entire of a small island which lies a short distance in front of the city to which it is connected at one end by a magnificent mole of solid masonry while the other which commands the entrance of the port is crowned with a battery bristling with cannon of immense calibre which would instantly sink any vessel which should now attempt to occupy the station taken by the queen charlotte on that memorable occasion on the land side the defences are by no means of equal strength as they were always considered rather as a shelter against an insurrectionary movement of the natives than as intended to repulse the regular attacks of a disciplined army in fact defences on this side would be would be of little use as the city is completely commanded by different hills particularly that on which the emperor's fort is built and was obliged instantly to capitulate as soon as this latter had fallen into the hands of the french in eighteen thirty there are four gates one opening on the mole which is thence called the marine gate one near the citadel which is termed the new gate and the other two at the north and south sides of the city with the principal street running between them all these gates are strongly fortified and outside the three land gates run the remains of a ditch which once surrounded the city but is now filled up except at these points the streets of algiers are all crooked and all narrow the best are scarcely twelve feet in breadth and even half of this is occupied by the projections of the shops or the props placed to support the first stories of the houses which are generally made to advance beyond the lower insomuch that in many places a laden mule can scarcely pass of public buildings the most remarkable is the casalba or citadel the situation of which we have already mentioned it is a huge heavy-looking brick building of a square shape surrounded by high and massive walls and defended by fifty pieces of cannon and some mortars so placed as equally to all the city and country the apartments set apart for the habitation of the day and the ladies of his harem are described as extremely magnificent and abundantly supplied with marble pillars fountains mirrors carpets ottomans cushions and other articles of oriental luxury there are others no less valuable and curious such as the armory furnished with weapons of every kind of the finest manufacture and in the greatest abundance the treasury containing not only a profusion of the precious metals coined or earned ingots but also diamonds pearls rubies and other precious stones of great value and lastly the storerooms of immense extent in which were piled up the richest silk stuffs velvets brocades together with wool wax sugar iron lead 
saber blades, gun barrels, and all the different productions of the Algerine territories. For the day was not only the first robber, but the first merchant in his own dominions. Next to the Casaba, the mole with the marine forts presented the handsomest and most imposing pile of buildings. The mole is no less than 1,300 feet in length, forming a beautiful terrace walk supported by arches, beneath which lay splendid magazines, which the French found filled with spars, hemp, cordage, cables, and all manner of marine stores. At the extremity of the mole lay the barracks of the Janissaries, entrusted with the defense of the marine forts, and consisting of several small separate chambers, in which they each slept on sheepskin mats, while in the center was a long, handsome coffee-room. The bagnios were the buildings in which Europeans for a long time felt the most interest, inasmuch as it was in these that the Christian slaves taken by the corsairs were confined. For many years previous to the French invasion, however, the number of prisoners had been so trifling that many of these terrific buildings had fallen into decay and presented, when the French army entered Algiers, little more than piles of mouldering ruins. The inmates of the Bagnio, when taken by the French, were the crews of two French brigs, which a short time before had been wrecked off Cape Bingut, a few French prisoners of war made during their advance, and about twenty Greek and Genoese sailors, who had been there for two years, and all about one hundred and twenty. They represented their condition as bad, though by no means so deplorable as it would have been in former days. The prison was at first so close that there was some danger of suffocation, to avoid which the Turks made holes in the walls, but as they neglected to supply these with windows or shutters of any kind, there was no means of excluding wind or rain, from which consequently they often suffered. We shall only trace these pirates back to about the year 1500, when Salem, king of Algiers, being invaded by the Spaniards, at last entreated the assistance of the famous corsair Urouge Rice, better known by his European name, Barbarossa, composed of two Italian words signifying red beard. Nothing could be more agreeable than the number of hardihood of his naval exploits, had been such an invitation to this ambitious robber who elated by for some time considering how he might best establish his power by land accordingly attended by five thousand picked men he entered algiers made himself master of the town assassinated salem and had himself proclaimed king in his stead and thus was established that nest of pirates fresh swarms from which never ceased to annoy christian commerce and enslave christian mariners until its late final destruction by the french expedition in eighteen thirty in a piratical career of many centuries, the countless thousands who have been taken, enslaved, and perished in bondage by these monsters should long ago have drawn upon them the united vengeance of all Christendom. Many a youth of family and fortune, of delicate constitution, has been captured and sold in the slave market. His labor through the long hot days would be to cleanse out the foul bed of some large empty reservoir, where he would be made to strip, and, descending into the pond, bring up in his arms the black stinking mud, heaped up and pressed against his bosom, or to labor in drawing huge blocks of stone to build the mole, or in building and repairing the fortifications with numerous other painful and disgusting tasks. The only food was a scanty supply of black bread, and occasionally a few decayed olives, or sheep which had died from some disorder. At night they were crowded into that most horrid of prisons, the Bagnio, to sleep on a little filthy straw amidst the most noisome stenches, their limbs in chains, and often receiving the lash. Occasionally an individual would be ransomed, when his story would draw tears of pity from all who heard it. Ladies were frequently taken by these monsters and treated in the most inhuman manner, and sometimes whole families were enslaved. Numerous facts of the most heart-rending description are on record, but our limits oblige us to be brief. A Spanish lady, the wife of an officer, with her son, a youth of fourteen, and her daughter, six years old, were taken in a Spanish vessel by the Algerines. The barbarians treated her and both her children with the greatest inhumanity. 
The eldest they kept in chains, and the defenseless little one they wantonly treated so ill that the unhappy mother was often nearly deprived of her reason at the blows her infant received from these wretches, who plundered them of everything. They kept them many days at sea on hard and scanty fare, covered only with a few soiled rags, and in this state brought them to Algiers. They had been long confined in a dreadful dungeon in the Bagnio, where the slaves are kept, when a messenger was sent to the Aga, or captain of the Bagnio, for a female slave. It fortunately fell to the lot of the Spanish lady, but at the instant when she was embracing her son, who was tearing himself from his mother with haggard and disordered looks, to go to his imperious drivers. And, while in despair, she gazed on her little worn-out infant, she heard herself summoned to attend the guard of the prison to a family that had sent for a female slave. She obtained permission to take her little daughter with her. She dreaded being refused, and sent back to the horrid dungeon she was leaving, where no difference was paid to rank, and slaves of all conditions were huddled together. She went, therefore, prepared to accept of anything short of these sufferings. She was refused, as being in every respect opposite to the description of the person sent for. At length her entreaties and tears prevailed. Compassion overruled every obstacle, and she, with her little girl, was accepted. But there remained another difficulty. She had left her son chained in the midst of that dungeon from which she had just been rescued. Her kind patron soon learned the cause of her distress— but to send for the youth and treat him kindly, or in any way above that of a common slave, must hazard the demand of so large a ransom for him and his mother, as would forever preclude the hope of liberty. He was, however, sent for, and the menial offices they were both engaged to perform were only nominal. With circumspection the whole family were sheltered in this manner for three years. When the war with the Spaniards growing more inveterate, the Algerines demanded the youth back to the Bagnio, to work in common with the other slaves, and repairing the damages done to the fortresses by the Spanish cannon. He was now compelled to go, loaded with heavy stones, through the whole of the town, and at almost every step he received dreadful blows, not being able to hasten his pace from the great weight. Overcome at last with ill usage, the delicacy of his form and constitution gave way to the excessive labor, and he one morning refused the orders of his master or driver to rise from the straw on which he was stretched, declaring they might kill him if he chose, for he would not even try to carry another load of stones. Repeated messages had been sent from the Venetian consuls, where his mother and sister were sheltered, to the Aga to return him, and when the Algerines found that they had absolutely reduced him so near death, they thought it best to spare his life for the sake of future ransom. They agreed, therefore, to let him return to the Christians. His life was for some time despaired of, but through the kind attention he received, he was rescued from the threatened dissolution. His recovery was concealed for fear of his being demanded back to work, and a few months after, the Spanish peace of 1784 being concluded, a ransom was accepted by the Algerines for the suffering family, and they were set at liberty. These pirates in old times extended their depredations into the Atlantic as far as the British Channel. They swarmed in the Mediterranean, not only belonging to Algiers, but Tunis and other ports on the coast of Barbary. Their corsairs making descents on the coasts of those countries which border on the Mediterranean, pillaging the villages and carrying off the inhabitants into slavery. The corsairs were vessels of different descriptions, some large armed ships and latterly frigates, others were row galleys and the various craft used by the nations which navigate that sea, and had been taken by them and added to their marine. Upon the slaves being landed at Algiers, they were marched to the Days or Beshaw's palace, when he selected the number which, according to law, belonged to him and the rest were sold in the slave market to the highest bidder. A moiety of the plunder, cargoes and vessels taken also belonged to the day. Occasionally a person pretending to renounce his religion and turning Mahometan would have his sufferings mitigated. The most desperate attempts were sometimes made to effect an escape from these ruthless monsters, which occasionally succeeded. In 1644, William Oakley and four companions escaped from Algiers in a most miraculous manner in a canvas boat. 
there was at this time an english clergyman mr spratt in captivity and the wretched slaves had the privilege of meeting in a cellar where he would pray with them oakley had gotten to the good graces of his master and was allowed his time by giving his master two dollars a month he traded in tobacco and a few trifling articles so that a strict watch was not kept on his movements he conceived the project of making a canvas boat he says i now first opened my design to my comrades informing them that i had contrived the model of a boat which being formed in pieces and afterwards put together might be the means of our deliverance they greedily grasped at the prospect but cooler reflection pointed out difficulties innumerable some of them started objections which they thought insuperable and these i endeavoured to overrule we began our work in the cellar which had served for our devotions though it was not the sanctity of the place but its privacy that induced us to the selection we first provided a piece of wood twelve feet long and that it might escape observation it was cut in two being jointed in the middle next we procured the timbers of ribs which to avoid the same hazard were in three pieces each and jointed in two places the flat side of one of the two pieces was laid over the other and two holes bored in every joint to receive nails so that when united each joint would make an obtuse angle and approach towards a semicircular figure as we required we had in the formation of an external covering to avoid hammering and nailing which would have made such a noise in the cellar as to attract the notice of the algerines who were insufferably suspicious about their wives and slaves therefore we provided as much canvas as would cover the boat twice over and as much pitch tar and tallow as would make it a kind of tarpaulin as also earthen pots in which to melt our materials the two carpenters and myself were appointed to this service in the cellar we stopped up all chinks and crevices that the fumes of these substances might not betray us but we had not been long at work when the smell of the melting materials overcame me and obligated me to go into the streets gasping for breath where meeting with the cool air i swooned away and broke my face in the fall my companions finding me in this plight carried me back extremely sick and unserviceable before long i heard one of them complain of sickness and thus he could proceed no further therefore i saw if we abandoned our project this night it might not be resumed which made me resolve to set the cellar door wide open while i stood sentinel to give notice of approaching danger in this way we finished the hole and then carried it to my shop which was about a furlong distant everything was fitted in the cellar the timbers to the keel the canvas to the timbers and the seats to the hole and then all were taken to pieces again it was a matter of difficulty however to get the pieces conveyed out of the city but william adams carried the keel and hid it at the bottom of a hedge the rest was carried away with similar precautions as i was carrying a piece of canvas which we had bought for a sale i looked back and discovered the same spy who had formerly given us much trouble following behind this gave me no small concern but observing an englishman washing clothes by the seaside i desired his help in washing the canvas just as we were engaged with it the spy came up and stood on a rock exactly over our heads to watch us therefore to delude him i took the canvas and spread it before his face on the top of the rock to dry he stayed his own time and then marched off still i was jealous of his intentions which induced me to carry the canvas when dry straight back to the city an incident that greatly discouraged my comrades we also procured a small quantity of provisions and two goatskins full of fresh water in the meantime i paid my patron my wanton visits kept up a fair correspondence and duly gave him his demands while i secretly turned all my goods to ready money as fast as i could and putting it into a trunk with a false bottom i committed it to the charge of mr spratt who faithfully preserved it for me the place which we chose for joining the boat together was a hill about a half mile from the city thinking by that means the better to descry the approach of danger 
when the pieces were united and the canvas drawn on four of our number carried the boat down to the sea where stripping ourselves naked and putting our clothes within we carried it as far as we could wade lest it might be injured by the stones or rocks near the shore but we soon discovered that our calculations of lading were erroneous for no sooner had we embarked than the water came in over the sides and she was like to sink so that some new device became necessary at last one whose heart most failed him was willing to be excluded and wished rather to hazard the uncertain torments of land than the certainty of being drowned at sea however the boat was still so deeply laden that we all concluded that it was impossible to venture to sea at length another went ashore and she held her head stoutly and seemed sufficiently capable of our voyage taking a solemn farewell of our two companions left behind and wishing them as much happiness as could be hoped for in slavery and they to us as long a life as could be expected by men going to their graves we launched out on the thirtieth of june sixteen forty four a night ever to be remembered our company consisted of john anthony william adams john jeffs john the carpenter and myself we now put to sea without helm tackle or compass four of us continually labored at the oars the employment of the fifth was bailing out the water that leaped through the canvas we struggled hard the first night to get out of the reach of our old masters but when the day broke we were still within sight of their ships in the haven and roadstead yet our boat being small and lying close and snug upon the sea either was not discovered at all or else seemed something that was not worth taking up on all occasions we found our want of foresight for now the bread which had lain soaking in the salt water was quite spoiled and the tanned skins imparted a nauseous quality to the fresh water so long as bread was bread we made no complaints with careful economy it lasted three days but then pale famine which is the most horrible shape in which death can be painted began to stare us in the face the expedients on which we fell to assuage our thirst rather inflamed it and several things added to our distress for some time the wind was right against us our labor was incessant for although much rowing did not carry us forward still cessation of it drove us back and the season was raging hot which rendered our toil insupportable one small alleviation we had in the man whose province it was to bail the water out of the boat he threw it on our bodies to cool them however what with the scorching of the sun and the cooling of the water our skin was blistered all over by day we were stark naked by night we had on shirts or loose coats for we had left our clothing ashore on purpose to lighten the boat one of our number had a pocket dial which supplied the place of a compass and to say the truth was not ill befitting such a vessel and such mariners by its aid we steered our course by day while the stars served as a guide by night and if they were obscured we guessed our way by the motion of the clouds in this woeful plight we continued four days and nights on the fifth day we were at the brink of despair and abandoned all hopes of safety thence we ceased our labor and laid aside our oars for either we had no strength left to use them or were reluctant to waste the little we had to no purpose still we kept emptying the boat loth to drown loth to die yet knowing no means to avoid death they that act least commonly wish the most and when we had forsaken useful labor we resorted to fruitless wishes that we might be taken up by some ship if it were but a ship no matter of what country while we lay hauling up and down our hopes at so low an ebb we discovered a tortoise not far from us asleep in the sea had the great drake discovered the spanish plate fleet he could not have been more rejoiced once again we bethought ourselves of our oars and silently rowing to our prey took it into the boat in great triumph having cut off its head and let it bleed in the vessel we drank the blood ate the liver and sucked the flesh our strength and spirits were woefully refreshed and our work was vigorously renewed leaving our fears behind us we began to gather hope and about noon discovered or thought we discovered land it is impossible to describe our joy and triumph on this occasion it was new life to us it brought fresh blood into our veins and fresh vigor into our pale cheeks we looked like persons raised from the dead 
After further exertion, becoming more confident, we were at last fully satisfied that it was land. Now, like distracted persons, we all leapt into the sea, and, being good swimmers, cooled our parched bodies, never considering that we might become a ready prey to the sharks. But we presently returned to our boat, and, from being wearied with the exertion, and somewhat cooled by the sea, lay down to sleep with as much security as if it had been in our beds. It was fortunately of such short duration that the leaking of the boat occasioned no danger. Refreshed by sleep, we found new strength for our work, and tugged hard at the oar, in hopes of reaching a more stable element before night. But our progress was very slow. Towards evening an island was discovered, which was Fromontaire, having already seen Majorca. At least some of our company, who had navigated these seas, declared that it was so. We debated long to which of the two our course should be directed, and, because the last discovered was much infested with venomous serpents, we all resolved to make for Majorca. The whole of that night we rode very hard, and also the next, being the sixth from our putting to sea. The island was in sight all day, and about ten at night we came under land, but it consisted of rocks so steep and craggy that we could not climb up. Whilst under these rocks a vessel approached very near. Let the reader conceive our apprehensions, after all our toil and labor of being seized by some Turkish privateer, such as are never off the seas. Thus we were obliged to lie close, and, when the vessel had passed, we crept gently along the coast, as near as we durst to the shore, until finding a suitable place to receive our weather-beaten boat. We were not insensible of our deliverance on reaching land, though, like men just awakened from a dream, we could not duly appreciate the greatness of it. Having had no food since we got the tortoise, John Anthony and myself set out in search of fresh water, and three remained with the boat. Before proceeding far, we found ourselves in a wood which created great embarrassment. My comrade wished to go one way, and I wished to go another. How frail impotent a being is, ma'am, that we, whom common dangers by sea had united, should now fall out about our own inclinations at land. Yet so we did. He gave me reproachful words, and it is well that we did not come to blows, but I went my way, and he, seeing me resolute, followed. The path led to one of those watch-towers which the Spaniards keep on the coast to give timely notice of the approach of privateers. Afraid of being fired on, we called to the sentinel, informing him who we were, and earnestly requesting him to direct us to fresh water, and to give us some bread. He very kindly threw down an old moldy cake, and directed us to a well close at hand. We drank a little water, and ate a bit of cake which we had difficulty in swallowing, and then hastened to return to our companions in the boat to acquaint them with our success. Though not necessary to leave the boat, we did not do it without regret, but this was lulled by the importunate cravings of hunger and thirst. Therefore, making her fast ashore, we departed. Advancing, or rather crawling, towards the well, another quarrel rose amongst us, the remembrance of which is so ungrateful that I shall bury it in silence, the best tomb for controversies. One of our company, William Adams, in attempting to drink, was unable to swallow the water, and sunk to the ground, faintly exclaiming, I am a dead man. After much straining and forcing, he, at length, got a little over, and when we were all refreshed with cake and water, we lay down by the side of the well to wait for morning. When it was broad day, we once more applied to the sentinel, to point out the way to the nearest house or town, which he did, directing us to a house about two miles distant. But our feet were so raw and blistered by the sun that it was long before we could get this short journey over, and then the owners of the house, concluding from our garb that we came with a pilfering design, presented a fowling piece, charging us to stand. The first of our number who could speak the language of the country mildly endeavored to undeceive him, saying we were a company of poor creatures whom the wonderful providence of God had rescued from the slavery of Algiers, and hoped that he would show mercy to our afflictions. The honest farmer, moved with our relations, sent out bread, water, and olives, after refreshing ourselves with these, we lay down and rested three or four hours in the field, and having given him thanks for his charity, prepared to crawl away. Pleased with our gratitude, he called us into his house, and gave us good warm bean pottage, 
which to me seemed the best food I had ever eaten. Again taking leave, we advanced towards Majorca, which was about ten miles distant. Next morning we arrived in the suburbs where the singularity of our attire, being barefoot and bare-legged, and having nothing on except loose shirts drawn over our coats, attracted a crowd of inquirers. We gave a circumstantial account of our deliverance, and as they were willing to contribute to our relief, they supplied us with food, wine, strong waters, and whatever else might renovate our, our exhausted spirits. They said, however, that we must remain in the suburbs until the viceroy had notice of our arrival. We were called before him, and when he had heard of the account of our escape and dangers, he ordered us to be maintained at his expense until we should obtain a passage to our own country, and, in the meantime, the people collected money to buy clothes and shoes. From Majorca they proceeded to Cadiz, and from thence to England, which they reached in safety. Several expeditions at different periods were fitted out by different European nations to chastise the pirates. The Emperor Charles V, in the plenitude of his power, sailed with a formidable armament in the year 1541, and effected a landing. Without doubt he would have taken the city if a terrible storm had not risen, which destroyed a great part of his fleet and obliged him to re-embark with his shattered forces in the greatest precipitation. The exultation of the Algerines was unbounded. They now looked on themselves as the special favorites of heaven, and the most powerful army which had ever attempted their subjection had returned with the loss of one-third their number, and a great part of its ships and transports. Prisoners had been taken in such abundance that to show their worthlessness they were publicly sold in the marketplace at Algiers, at an onion a head. For nearly a century after this, little occurs of note in Algerine history, except a constant system of piracy. In 1655, the British Admiral Blake gave them a drubbing. The French were the next to attack these common enemies of Europe. Admiral Duguesne commanded the expedition, and after bombarding the place a short time, the day himself soon began to be terrified at the destruction these new engines of naval war made, when an unfavorable wind arising compelled the fleet to make all sail for Toulon. Relieved from the terror of immediate destruction, the Algerines returned to their old ways, making descents on the coast of Provence, where they committed the most dreadful ravages, killing, burning, and destroying all that came in their way. The day also recovered not only his courage, but his humor, for learning what a large sum the late expedition against his city had cost, he sent to say, that if Louis would give him half the money, he would undertake to burn the whole city to please him. The French accordingly sent a new expedition under the same officers the next year. Duguesne again sailed, and in front of the city was joined by Marquis d'Affranville at the head of five other stout ships. A council of war was held, and an immediate attack resolved upon, in consequence of which, the vessels having taken up their stations, a hundred bombs were thrown into the town during that day, and as many more on the following night, when the town was observed to be on fire in several places. The day's palace and other public buildings were in ruins. Some of the batteries were dismounted, and several vessels sunk in the fort. The speedy destruction soon determined the day, and Janissaries to sue for peace, and a message to this effect was sent to Duguesne, who consented to cease firing, but refused to negotiate regarding terms, until all the captives were taken fighting under the French flag were given up as a preliminary step. This was agreed to, and 142 prisoners immediately sent off. In the meantime, the soldiery becoming furious assassinated the day and elected a new one, who ordered the flag to be hoisted on the city walls. Hostilities were now renewed with greater fury than before, and the French admiral threw such volleys of bombs into the city that in less than three days the greatest part of it was reduced to ashes, and the fire burnt with such vehemence that the bay was illuminated to the distance of two or three leagues. Rendered desperate by the carnage around him, the new day ordered all the French captives who had been collected into the city to be cruelly murdered, and binding Father Vacher, the French resident, hand and foot, had him tied to a mortar and fired off like a bomb against the French fleet. 
This wanton piece of atrocity so exasperated Dugain that, laying his fleet as near land as possible, he continued his cannonade until he had destroyed all their shipping fortifications, buildings, in short, almost the whole of the lower town, and about two-thirds of the upper, when finding nothing else which a naval force could do, and being unprovided for a land expedition, he stood out leisurely at sea, leaving the Algerines to reflect over the sad consequences of their obstinacy. For several years after this they kept in the old piratical track, and upon the British consul's making a complaint to the day, on occasion of one of his corsairs having captured a vessel, he openly replied, It is all very true, but what would you have? The Algerines are a company of rogues, and I am their captain. To such people force was the argument, and in 1700 Captain Beach, falling in with seven of their frigates, attacked them, drove them on shore, and burnt them. Expeditions at various times were sent against them, but without effecting much, and most of the maritime nations paid them tribute. But a new power was destined to spring up from which these pirates were to receive their first check. That power was the United States of America. In 1792 his corsairs, in a single cruise, swept off ten American vessels and sent their crews to Bagneo, so that they were one hundred and fifteen in slavery. Negotiations were at once set on foot. The day's demands had, of course, risen in proportion to the number of his prisoners, and the Americans had not only to pay ransom at a high rate, with presents, marine stores, and yearly tribute, but to build and present to the day, as a propitiatory offering, a thirty-six-gun frigate, so that the whole expenses fell little short of a million of dollars, in return for which they obtained liberty for their captives, protection for their merchant vessels, and the right of free trade with the Algiers. The treaty was signed September 15, 1795, and from that time, up to 1812, the day continued on tolerable good terms with Congress. Indeed, so highly was he pleased with them in 1800 that he signified to the Council his intention of sending an ambassador to the port, with the customary presence in the Washington, a small American frigate, at the time lying in the harbor of Algiers. In vain, the Consul and Captain remonstrated, and represented that they had no authority to send the vessel on such a mission. They were silenced by the assurance that it was a particular honor conferred on them, which the day had declined offering to any of the English vessels then in the harbor, as he was rather angry with that nation. The Washington was obliged to be prepared for the service. The corsair flag, bearing the turbaned head of Ally, was run up her main top under a salute of seven guns, and in this respectable plight she sailed up the Mediterranean, dropped anchor before the seven towers, where, having landed her cargo, she was permitted to resume her own colors, and was thus the first vessel to hoist the American Union in the Thracian Bosphorus. In eighteen twelve, however, the day, finding his funds at a low ebb, and receiving from all quarters reports that a wealthy American commerce was afloat, determined on trying them with a new war. He was peculiarly unfortunate in the time chosen, as the States, having about a month previously declared war with Great Britain, had, in fact, withdrawn most of the merchant ships from the sea, so that the only prize which fell into the hands of the day's cruisers was a small brig, with a crew of eleven persons. The time at length came for putting an end to these lawless depredations, and peace having been concluded with England, President Madison, in 1815, dispatched an American squadron under Commodores Bainbridge and Decatur, with Mr. Shaler as envoy, on board, to demand full satisfaction for all injuries done to American subjects, the immediate release of such as were captives, the restitution of their property, with an assurance that no future violence should be offered, and also to negotiate the preliminaries of a treaty on terms of perfect equality, no proposal of tribute being at all admissible. The squadron reached its destination early in June, and, having captured an Algerine frigate and brig of war, suddenly appeared before Algiers, at a moment when all the cruisers were at sea, and delivered for the consideration of the divan, 
the terms on which they were commissioned to make peace, together with a letter from the president to the day. Confounded by the sudden and entirely unexpected appearance of this force, the Algerines agreed on the 30th of June to the proposals of a treaty almost without discussion. It had long been a reproach to Great Britain, the mistress of the sea, that she had tamely suffered a barbarian power to commit such atrocities, ravages on the fleets and shores of the minor states belonging to the Mediterranean. At length a good cause was made for chastising them. At Bona, a few miles to the east of Algiers, was an establishment for carrying on a coral fishery, under the protection of the British flag, which, at the season, was frequented by a number of boats from the Corsican, Neapolitan, and other Italian ports. On the 23rd of May, the Feast of Ascension, as the crews of all the boats were preparing to hear Mass, a gun was fired from the castle, and at the same time appeared about 2,000, other accounts to say 4,000, infantry and cavalry, consisting of Turks, Levanters, and Moors. A part of these troops proceeded towards the country, whilst another band advanced towards the river, where the fishing boats were lying at different distances from the sea and opening a fire upon the unfortunate fishermen who were partly on board and partly on land massacred almost the whole of them they then seized the english flags tore them in pieces and trampling them under foot dragged them along in ground in triumph the men who happened to be in the country saved themselves by flight and declared that they saw the soldiers pillage the house of the british vice-consul the magazines containing the provisions and the quarrel that had been fished up a few boats escaped and brought the news to genoa whence it was transmitted by the agent of lloyd's in a dispatch dated june sixth no sooner had the account of this atrocious slaughter reached england than all ranks seemed inflamed with the desire that a great and signal punishment should be taken on this barbarian prince who was neither restrained by the feelings of humanity nor bound by treaties an expedition therefore was fitted out with all speed at portsmouth and the command entrusted to Lord Exmouth, who, after some delays from contrary winds, finally sailed July 28th, with a fleet complete in all points, consisting of his own ship, the Queen Charlotte, 120 guns, the impregnable rear admiral, Sir David Milne, 90 guns, Minden, Superb, Albion, each 74 guns, the Leander, 50 guns, with more frigates and brigs, bombs, fire-ships, and several smaller vessels, well supplied, in addition to the ordinary means of warfare, with congreve rockets and shrapnel shells the destructive powers of which have lately been abundantly proved on the continent august ninth the fleet anchored at gibraltar and was there joined by the dutch admiral van capillen commanding five frigates and a corvette who had been already at algiers endeavouring to deliver slaves but being refused and finding his force insufficient had determined on joining himself with the english squadron which it was understood was under way Meanwhile, the Prometheus, Captain Dashwood, had been sent forward to Algiers to bring off the British consul and family, but could only succeed in getting his wife and daughter, who were obliged to make their escape disguised in midshipman's uniform, for the day, having heard through some French papers of the British expedition, had seized the consul, Mr. Macdonnell, and put him in chains, and hearing of the escape of his wife, immediately ordered the detention of two boats of the Prometheus, which happened to be on shore, and made slaves of the crews, amounting to eighteen men. This new outrage was reported to Lord Exmouth soon after leaving Gibraltar, and of course added not a little to his eagerness to reach Algiers. He arrived off Algiers on the morning of the 27th of August, and sent in his interpreter, Mr. Salome, with Lieutenant Burgess, under a flag of truce, bearing a letter for the day, demanding reparation. Meantime, a light breeze sprung up, and the fleet advanced into the bay and lay to, at about a mile off Algiers. It was now, says Mr. Salome, in his entertaining narrative, half-past two, and no answer coming out, notwithstanding we had stayed half an hour longer than our instructions, and the fleet being almost opposite the town, with the fine breeze, we thought proper, after having done our duty, to lose no more time, but to go on board and inform his lordship of what had happened. 
Mr. Burgess, the flag lieutenant, having agreed with me, we hoisted the signal that no answer had been given, and began to row away towards the Queen Charlotte. After I had given a report to the Admiral of our meeting, the captain of the port, and our waiting there, etc., I was quite surprised to see how his lordship was altered from what I left him in the morning for i knew his manner was in general very mild and now he seemed to me all fightful as a fierce lion which had been chained in its cage and was set now at liberty with all that his lordship's answer to me was never mind we shall see now and at the same time he turned towards the officer saying be ready whereupon i saw every one with the match or the string of the lock in his hand most anxiously expecting the word fire no sooner had salome returned than his lordship made the signal to know whether all the ships were ready which being answered in the affirmative he directly turned the head of the queen charlotte towards the shore and to the utter amazement of the algerines ran across all the batteries without firing or receiving a single shot until he brought up within eighty yards of the south end of the mole where he lashed her to the mainmast of an algerine brig which he had taken as his direction and had then the pleasure of seeing all the rest of the fleet including the dutch frigates taking up their assigned stations with the same precision and regularity the position in which the charlotte was laid was so admirable that she was only exposed to the fire of three or four flanking guns while her broadside swept the whole batteries and completely commanded the mole and marine every part of which could be seen distinctly from her quarter-deck up to this moment not a shot had been fired and the batteries were all crowded with spectators gazing in astonishment at the quiet and regularity which prevailed through all the british ships and the dangerous vicinity in which they placed themselves to such formidable means of defence lord exmouth therefore began to conceive hopes that his demands would still be granted but the delay it appeared was caused by the algerines being completely unprepared for so very sudden an approach insomuch that their guns were not shotted at the moment when the queen charlotte swept past them and they were distinctly seen loading them as the other ships were coming into line anxious if possible to spare unnecessary effusion of blood his lordship standing on the quarter-deck repeatedly waved his hat as a warning to the multitudes assembled on the mole to retire but his signal was unheeded and at a quarter before three in the afternoon the first gun was fired at the queen charlotte from the eastern battery and two more at the albion and superb which were following then lord exmouth having seen only the smoke of the gun before the sound reached him said with great alacrity that will do fire my fine fellows and i am sure that before his lordship had finished these words our broadside was given with great cheering which was fired three times within five or six minutes and at the same time the other ships did the same this first fire was so terrible that they say more than five hundred persons were killed and wounded by it and i believe this because there was a great crowd of people in every part many of whom after the first discharge i saw running away under the walls like dogs walking upon their feet and hands after the attack took place on both sides in this horrible manner immediately the sky was darkened by the smoke the sun completely eclipsed and the horizon became dreary being exhausted by the heat of that powerful sun to which i was exposed the whole day and my ears being deafened by the roar of the guns and finding myself in the dreadful danger of such a terrible engagement in which i had never been before i was quite at a loss and like an astonished or stupid man and did not know what myself where i was at last his lordship having perceived my situation said you have done your duty now go below upon which i began to descend from the quarter-deck quite confounded and terrified and not sure that i should reach the cockpit alive for it was most tremendous to hear the crashing of the shot to see the wounded men brought from one part and the killed from the other and especially at such a time to be found among the english seamen and to witness their manners their activity their courage and their cheerfulness during the battle it is really most overpowering and beyond imagination the battle continued to rage furiously and the havoc on both sides was very great there were some awful moments particularly when algerine vessels so near our line were set on fire 
the officers surrounding lord exmouth had been anxious for permission to make an attempt upon the outer frigate distant about a hundred yards he at length consented and major gossett of the corps of marines eagerly entreated and obtained permission to accompany lieutenant richards in the ship's barge the frigate was instantly boarded and in ten minutes in a perfect blaze a gallant young midshipman although forbidden was led by his too ardent spirit to follow in support of the barge in which attempt he was desperately wounded his brother officer killed and nine of the crew the barge by rowing more rapidly escaped better having but one killed about sunset the admiral received a message from rear admiral milne stating his severe loss in killed and wounded amounting to one hundred and fifty and requesting that if possible a frigate might be sent him to take off some of the enemy's fire the glasgow accordingly was ordered to get under way but the wind having been laid by the cannonade she was obliged again to anchor having obtained a rather more favorable position the flotilla of mortar gun and rocket boats under the direction of their respective artillery officers shared to the full extent of their powers the honors and toils of this glorious day it was by their fire that all the ships in the port with the exception of the outer frigate already mentioned were in flames which extending rapidly over the whole arsenal gunboats and storehouses exhibited a spectacle of awful grandeur and interest which no pen can describe the sloops of war which had been appropriated to aid and assist the ships of the line and prepare for their retreat performed not only that duty well but embraced every opportunity of firing through the intervals and were constantly in motion the shells from the bombs were admirably well thrown by the royal marine artillery and though directed over and across our own men-of-war did not produce a single accident to complete the confusion of the enemy the admiral now ordered the explosion ship which had been charged for the occasion to be brought within the mole but upon the representation of sir david milne that it would do him essential service if made to act on the battery in his front it was towed to that spot and blown up with tremendous effect this was almost the final blow the enemy's fire had for some time been very slack and now almost wholly ceased except that occasionally a few shots and shells were discharged from the higher citadel upon which the guns of the fleet could not be brought to bear the admiral who from the commencement had been in the hottest of the engagement and had fired until his guns were so hot that they could some of them not be used again now seeing that he had executed the most important part of his instructions issued orders for drawing off the fleet this was commenced in excellent order about ten at night and the usual breeze having set off from shore favored their maneuver so that all hands being employed in warping and towing the vessels were got safely into the bay and anchored beyond reach of shot about two o'clock the next morning so signal and well contested a victory could not have been gained without a considerable loss and suffering it amounted in the english fleet to one hundred and twenty-eight men killed and six hundred and ninety wounded and the dutch squadron to thirteen killed and fifty-two wounded grand total eight hundred and eighty-three but the enemy suffered much more severely they are computed to have lost and killed and wounded not less than between six and seven thousand men the loss sustained by the algerines by the destruction in the mole was four large frigates of forty-four guns five large corvettes from twenty-four to thirty guns all the gun and mortar boats except seven thirty destroyed several merchant brigs and schooners a great number of small vessels of various descriptions all the pontoons lighters and etc storehouses and arsenal with all the timber and various marine articles destroyed in part a great many gun carriages mortar beds casks and ship stores of all descriptions negotiations were immediately opened in form and on the thirtieth august the admiral published a notification to the fleet that all demands had been complied with 
the British consul had been indemnified for his losses, and the day, in presence of all his officers, had made him a public apology for the insult offered him. On the 1st of September, Lord Exmouth had the pleasure of informing the Secretary of the Admiralty that all the slaves in the city of Algiers and its immediate vicinity were embarked, as also $357,000 for Naples and $25,000 for Sardinia. The number of slaves thus released amounted to 1,083, of whom 471 were Neapolitans, 236 Sicilians, 173 Romans, 6 Tuscans, 161 Spaniards, 1 Portuguese, 7 Greeks, 28 Dutch, and not 1 Englishman. Were there an action more than another on which an Englishman would willingly risk the fame and honor of his nation, it would be this attack on Algiers, which, undertaken solely at her own risk, and earned solely by the expenditure of her own blood and her own resources, rescued not a single subject of her own from the tyrant's grasp, while it freed more than a thousand belonging to other European powers. In August 1816, the strength of Algiers seemed annihilated. Her walls were in ruins, her haughty flag was humbled to the dust, her gates lay open to a hostile power, and terms were dictated in the palace of her princes. A year passed, the hostile squadron had left her ports, the clang of the workman's hammer, the hum of busy men resounded through her streets, fresh walls had risen, new and more formidable batteries had been added. Again she resumed her attitude as of yore, bid defiance to her foes, and declared war on civilization. Again her blood-stained corsairs swept the seas, eager for plunder, ready for combat. Christian commerce once more became shackled by her enterprise, and Christian captives once more sent up their cry for deliverance. In 1819 her piracies had become so numerous that the Congress of la chapelle caused it to be notified to the day that their cessation was required and would be enforced by a combined French and English squadron. His reply was brief but arrogant, and the admirals were obliged to leave without obtaining the least satisfaction. By menaces, however, accompanied by the presence of some cruisers, England, France, and the United States caused their flags to be respected. Ali, the successor of Amar, had died in 1818, and was succeeded by Hussein Pasha, who, from the commencement of his reign, evinced the strongest antipathy to the French power. In 1824, he imposed an arbitrary tax through all his provinces on French goods and manufactures. The consul's house was frequently entered and searched in a vexatious manner, contrary to the express stipulation of the treaties. And finally, April 1827, the consul himself, having gone at the Feast of Bayram to pay his respects, was, upon a slight difference of opinion arising during their conversation, struck across the mouth with a fly-flap which the day held in his hand, and in consequence soon after left Algiers, while the day ordered the destruction of all the French establishments along the coast towards Bona and oppressed in every manner the French residents within his dominions. A blockade was instantly commenced by the French, and maintained for nearly three years, until it was found that they suffered much more by it than the day, the expense having reached nearly 800,000 sterling, while he appeared no way inconvenienced by their efforts, and even treated them with such contempt as to order his forts to fire on the vessel of Admiral Le da Brontignier, who in 1829 had gone there under a flag of truce to make a final proposal of terms of accommodation. So signal a violation of the laws of nations could not be overlooked, even by the imbecile administrations of Charles X. All France was in an uproar. The national flag had been dishonored and her ambassador insulted. The cry for war became loud and universal. 
Conferences on the subject were held. The oldest and most experienced mariners were invited by the minister at war to assist in his deliberations, and an expedition was finally determined on in the month of February 1830, to consist of about 37,000 men, a number which it was calculated would not only be sufficient to overcome all opposition which might be encountered, but to enable the French to reduce the kingdom to a province and retain it in subjection for any length of time that might be considered advisable. No sooner was this decision promulgated than all the necessary preparations were commenced with the utmost diligence. It was now February, and the expedition was to embark by the end of April so that no time could be lost. The arsenals, the navy, and military workships were all in full employment. Field and breaching batteries were mounted on a new principle lately adopted. Gabion's earth bag, chevaux de frise, and projectiles were made in the greatest abundance. Maps, notes, and all the information that could be procured respecting Barbary were transmitted to the war office, where their contents were compared and digested, and a plan of operations was drawn out. The commissariat were busy collecting provisions, wagons, and fitting out an efficient hospital train. A deputy commissionary was dispatched to Riconwata, the coast of Spain and the Balearic Islands, to ascertain what resources could be drawn from them, and negotiate with the king for leave to establish military hospitals at Port Mahon. Eighteen regiments of the line, three squadrons of cavalry, and different corps of artillery and engineers were ordered to hold themselves in readiness. Four hundred transports were assembled and chartered by government in the port of Marseille, while the vessels of war, which were to form the convoy, were appointed their rendezvous in the neighborhood of Toulon. After some hesitation as to who should command this important expedition, the Count de Bourmont, then minister at war, thought fit to appoint himself, and his état major was soon complete, Dupré acting as chief, and Tholoze as second in command. Maubert de Nouilly, who was chosen provost-marshal, de Bartillat, who afterwards wrote an entertaining account of the exposition, quartermaster-general, and de Carnet, commissionary-general to the forces. In addition to these, there were about twenty aides-de-camp, orderlies, and young men of rank attached to the staff, together with a Spanish general, an English colonel, a Russian colonel and lieutenant, and two Saxon officers, deputed by their respective governments. There was also a section of engineer geographers whose business was to survey and map the country as it was conquered, and, says M. Roger, who was himself employed in the service we have just mentioned, and to whose excellent work, written in that capacity, we are so much indebted, twenty-four interpreters, the half of whom knew neither French nor Arabic, were attached to the different corps of the army, in order to facilitate their intercourse with the inhabitants. As the minister had determined on risking his own reputation on the expedition, the supplies were all, of course, of the completest kind, and in the greatest abundance. Provisions for three months were ordered, an equal quantity was to be forwarded as soon as the army had landed in Africa, and amongst the other materials furnished we observe, in looking over the returns, thirty wooden legs and two hundred crutches, for the relief of the unfortunate heroes, a boring apparatus to sink pumps if water should run short, and a balloon, with two aeronauts, to reconnaitre the enemy's position, in case, as was represented to be their want, they should entrench themselves under the shelter of hedges and brushwood. The French effected a landing at Sidia Ferroc, a small promontory about five leagues to the west of Algiers and half a league to the east of the river Massafloran, where it discharges itself into the bay. On the 14th of June, they all landed without opposition. After a continued series of engagement and skirmishes, the army got within cannon shot of Algiers, where they broke ground and began entrenching, and the French works being completed, the heavy breaching cannon were all mounted, and at daybreak on the 4th of July, General Lahitte, 
having assured himself by personal inspection that all was ready, ordered the signal rocket to be thrown, and at the same moment the whole French batteries opened their fire within point-blank distance, and with a report which shook the whole of Algiers and brought the garrison, who were little expecting so speedy an attack, running to their posts. The artillery was admirably served, and from one battery which enfiladed the fort, the balls were seen to sweep away at once an entire row of Algerine cannoneers from their guns. The Turks displayed the most undaunted courage. They answered shot for shot, supplied with fresh men in the places of such as were slain, stopped up with wool sacks the breaches made by the balls, replaced the cannon which the French fire had dismounted, and never relaxed their exertions for a moment but the nature of their works was ill-calculated to withstand the scientific accuracy with which the besiegers made their attack. Every ball now told, the tower in the center was completely riddled by shots and shells. The bursting of these latter had disabled great numbers of the garrison. By seven o'clock the besieged had begun to retire from the most damaged part of their works. By half-past eight the whole outer line of defense was abandoned, and by nine the fire of the fort was extinct. The Turkish general, finding opposition hopeless, had sent to the day for commands, and in reply was ordered to retreat with his whole remaining force to Kassaba, and leave three negroes to blow up the fort. The tranquillity with which they performed the fatal task deserves record. The French, finding the enemy's fire to fail, directed all theirs toward effecting a practicable breach. The fort seemed to be abandoned. Two red flags floated still on its outside line of defense, and a third on the angle towards the city. Three negroes were seen calmly walking on the ramparts, and from time to time looking over, as if to examine what the progress the breach was making. One of them, struck by a cannonball, fell, and the others, as if to revenge his death, ran to a cannon, pointed it, and fired three shots. At the third the gun turned over, and they were una unable to replace it. They tried another, and as they were in the act of raising it, a shot swept the legs from under one of them. The remaining negro grazed for a moment at his comrade, drew him a little back, left him, and once more examined the breach. He then snatched one of the flags and retired to the interior of the tower. In a few minutes he reappeared, took a second, and descended. The French continued to cannonade, and the breach appeared almost practicable, when suddenly they were astounded by a terrific explosion which shook the whole ground as with an earthquake. An immense column of smoke, mixed with streaks of flame, burst from the center of the fortress. Masses of solid masonry were hurled into the air to an amazing height, while cannon, stones, timbers, projectiles, and dead bodies were scattered in every direction. The negro had done his duty. The fort was blown up. In half an hour the French sappers and miners were at work repairing the smoking ruins. Their advanced guards had effected a reconnaissance along the side of the hill towards the fort Babazuna and their engineers had broken ground for new works within seven hundred yards of the Casalba. But these preparations were unnecessary. The day had resigned all further intention of resistance, and at two o'clock a flag of truce was announced, which proved to be Sidi Mustapa, the day's private secretary, charged with offers of paying the whole expense of the campaign, relinquishing all his demands on France, and making any further reparation that the French general might require on condition that the troops should not enter Algiers. These proposals met with an instant negative, Bormont felt that Algiers was in his power, and declared that he would grant no other terms than an assurance of life to the day and inhabitants, adding that if the gates were not opened, he should recommence his fire. Scarcely had Mustapha gone, than two other deputies appeared, sent by the townsmen to plead in their behalf. They were a Turk called Omar, and a Moor named Baudubre, and who, having lived for some time at Marseille, spoke French perfectly. They received nearly the same answer as Mustapha, but they proved themselves better diplomatists. 
for they spoke so much to the general of the danger there would be in refusing the janissaries all terms and the probability that if thus driven to despair they might make a murderous resistance and afterwards destroy all the wealth and blow up all the forts before surrendering that bormont yielding to their representations became less stern in his demands and mustapha having returned about the same time with the english vice-consul as a mediator the following terms were finally committed to paper and sent to the day by an interpreter one the fort of the casalba with all the other forts dependent on algiers and the harbour shall be placed in the hands of the french troops the fifth of july at ten o'clock a m two the general-in-chief of the french army ensures the day of algiers personal liberty and all his private property three the day shall be free to retire with his family and wealth wherever he pleases while he remains at algiers he and his family shall be under the protection of the commander-in-chief a guard shall ensure his safety and that of his family four the same advantages and same protection are assured to all the soldiers of the militia five the exercise of the mohammedan religion shall remain free the liberty of the inhabitants of all classes their religion property commerce and industry shall receive no injury their women shall be respected the general takes this on his own responsibility six the ratification of this convention to be made before ten a m on the fifth of july and the french troops immediately after to take possession of the cassaba and other forts these terms were so much more favorable than the day could have expected that of course not a moment was lost in signifying his acceptance he only begged to be allowed two hours more to get himself and his goods out of the cassaba and these were readily granted it may indeed be wondered at that he and his janissaries should be allowed to retain their ill-gotten booty under the name of private property but count de bourmont though not without talent was essentially a weak man and was in this instance overreached by the wily moor the whole of next morning an immense number of persons were seen flying from algiers previous to the entry of the french army and carrying with them all their goods valuables and money they fled by the fort babazuna on the roads towards constantina and blida and about a hundred mounted arabs were seen caracoling on the beach as if to cover their retreat no opposition to it however was made by the french troops or by their navy which had now again come into sight at twelve o'clock the general with his staff artillery and a strong guard entered the casalba and at that same moment all the other forts were taken possession of by french troops no one appeared to make a formal surrender nor did any one present himself on the part of the inhabitants to inquire as to what protection they were to receive yet on the whole we believe the troops conducted themselves at least on this occasion with signal forbearance and that of the robberies which took place the greater number were perpetrated by moors and jews one was rather ingenious the minister of finance had given up the public treasures to commissioners regularly appointed for the purpose amongst others the mint was visited a receipt given of its containing bullion to the amount of twenty five thousand or thirty thousand francs the door sealed and a sentry placed next morning the seal was perfect the sentry at his post but the bullion had gone through a small hole made in the back wall the amount of public property found in algiers and appropriated by the french was very considerable and much more than repaid the expenses of the expedition the blockade of the last three years had by interrupting their commerce caused an accumulation of the commodities in which the algerines generally paid their tribute so that the storehouses at the casalba were abundantly filled with wool hides leather wax lead and copper quantities of grains silks muslins and gold and silver tissues were also found as well as salt of which the day had reserved to himself a monopoly and by buying it very cheap at the balearic isles used to sell it at an extravagant rate to his subjects the treasure alone amounted to nearly fifty million of francs and the cannon projectiles powder magazines and military stores together with the public buildings foundries dockyards and vessels in the harbour were estimated at a still larger amount while the entire expense of the expedition including land and sea service 
together with the maintenance of an army of occupation of up to January 1831, was computed not to exceed 48,500,000 francs, so that France must have re realized, by her first connection with Algiers, a sum not far short of 3 million sterling. A larger amount, we will venture to say, than is likely to accrue to her again, even after many years of colonization. In a few days the day had embarked for Naples, which he chose as his future place of residence. The Janissaries were sent in French vessels to Constantinople. The Bay of Tipperary made his submissions and swore allegiance to the French king. Orders were issued, and laws enacted in his name. The Arabs and Kailis came into market as usual with their fowl and game. A French soldier was tolerably safe as long as he avoided going to any distance beyond the outposts, and, on the whole, Algiers the warlike had assumed all the appearance of a French colony. End of chapter 27 Recording by Lara Christ, Louisville, Kentucky.